Welcome to the American Vandal, a podcast from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College, dedicated to funding, promoting, and producing scholarship on American literature, American humor, American history, and American studies. I'm Matt Siebel, resident scholar at the Center and editor of MarkTwainStudies.org. Today's episode features Mark Davidziak and Todd Thompson. Dr. Thompson will be presenting a paper which is part of the Viral Twain panel at the 2020 Virtual C19 Conference. If you'd like to learn more about Todd's research and other aspects of newspaper reprinting, please consider joining this discussion on Saturday, October 17th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern Time. For more information about registering for Virtual C19, please visit c19society.org or check out the links in the episode notes. My paper for the Viral Twain panel was featured on the last episode of the podcast. And the third paper for the panel is from Avery Blankenship of the Viral Text Project at Northeastern University. An extended version of Avery's paper is part of our Fall Trouble Begins lecture series. Because it draws so heavily on visual aids, we won't be featuring Avery's presentation on the podcast, but instead on our YouTube channel. You can find that link in the episode notes as well. Todd Nathan Thompson is professor of English at Indiana University of Pennsylvania. He was a 2019 Quarry Farm Fellow and Park Church Lecturer, a 2018 Trouble Begins Lecturer, and most recently a presenter at the 2020 Quarry Farm Symposium on American Humor and Matters of Empire. So you can find lots more of Todd's work in the archives at marktwainstudies.org. Today, he's going to discuss how Mark Twain became a preferred pundit on annexation and other related political controversies surrounding the Hawaiian Islands, then known as the Sandwich Islands. This is, a few more seminaries would finish them completely, Mark Twain, the Sandwich Islands, and the politics of reprinting. My name is Todd Thompson. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to my contribution to the Viral Twain panel at the 2020 C-19 conference. In October 1873, Mark Twain penned a letter to the editor of the London Weekly Standard, which read in part as follows. Sir, in view of the, of the prevailing frenzy concerning the Sandwich Islands and the inflamed desire of the public to acquire information concerning them, I've thought it well to tarry yet another week in England and deliver a lecture upon this absorbing subject. I do it because I am convinced that no one can allay this unwholesome excitement as effectually as I can. I feel and know that I am equal to this task, for I can allay any kind of excitement by lecturing upon it. I have always been able to paralyze the public interest in any topic that I choose to take hold of and elucidate with all my strength. Of course, instead of paralyzing the public interest in Hawaii, this notice, as Twain had hoped, stoked it, advertising his upcoming lectures. At least six American newspapers, too, reprinted Twain's letter. The ensuing 13 performances between October and December 1873 were the last of a lecture that Twain had been giving on and off since 1866, often titled Our Fellow Savages of the Sandwich Islands, but sometimes The Sandwich Islands, The Sandwich Islands, A Serio-Comic Lecture, A Serio-Humorous Lecture Concerning Kanakadam, or The Experiences of a Late Journey Through the Sandwich Islands. 
This is the lecture that made Mark Twain a household name across the U.S. Between 1866 and 1911, American newspapers printed over 187 reviews, mentions, and excerpts from this lecture that I've been able to track down in various periodical databases. These squibs and, and of course, countless others that didn't make it into the databases fueled Twain's literary celebrity and kept some Twain jokes in continual circulation. A close look at these excerpts shows how the circulation patterns and practices of scissors and paste journalism simultaneously shaped American readers' images of Twain and of Hawaii. But first, let me acknowledge some scholarly debts. My scholarship on reprinting in American humor builds on Bob Nicholson's research on jokes in Victorian-era Victorian newspapers, Meredith McGill's literary history of the culture of reprinting, Ryan Cordell's concept of the network author, and Cordell and Abby Mullen's work on fugitive verses. Adapting Cordell and Mullen's terminology to widely reprinted newspaper jokes, I've sought in my own work to identify examples of fugitive humor that, in reprint after reprint, adapted to different historical moments, audiences, and even rhetorical purposes. In this talk, I look at how reprinted jokes from Twain's lectures shift meanings through editorial changes or by their separation from the original context of the lectures themselves. The excerpts of Twain's lectures that editors reprinted out of context reveal the divergent ideological uses to which Twain's serial comic ruminations on Hawaii were put during decades rife with annexation agitation. Twain's early Sandwich Islands lectures, given soon after his return to the U.S. from Hawaii, were timely and topical, coinciding with Hawaiian Queen Emma's 1866 visit to San Francisco. In fact, the newspaper The Daily Alta California mentioned her visit and Twain's lecture in the same paragraph. In his first lecture, Twain exhibited support for U.S. annexation of Hawaii, noting its possibilities as a producer of sugar, cotton, and rice. He justified the stance by saying, quote, The property has got to fall to some heir, and why not the United States? But he soon omitted the annexation passages and by the end of 1867, quote, was publicly ranked with the anti-expansionists. In fact, as James Carone has noted, the lecture, quote, contains anti-annexation sentiment and general ambivalence about annexation. As Carone characterizes it, quote, during the lecture, Clemens, as Mark Twain, uses Hawaiian culture as the main butt of laughter, but he also inverts the assumed inferiority of, of, of the island culture in order to score points against American culture. In spite of this, the jokes from the lectures most often excerpted and reprinted by American editors tend to get easy laughs from highlighting Hawaiian otherness and implying American superiority. In this way, the fugitive jokes derived from Twain's lecture, often circulating without the framework of Twain's ironic, self-mocking stance or his lecture's anti-imperialist critiques, told a different story about Hawaii and Twain's attitude towards it than did his lecture as a whole. These circulating squibs certainly reached a wide swath of the American reading public. Of the 187 different excerpts from reviews of or mentions of the lecture between 1866 and 1911 that I found, the vast majority appeared before 1855 in 31 states, Montana Territory, and the Kingdom of Hawaii. 16 of them are merely announcements of upcoming lectures, and 53 are reviews or summaries of, references to, or compilations of, multiple jokes from Twain's lectures. The rest, some 118 reprints, are brief excerpts of one joke from the lecture. In what follows, I focus on a few of the most often reprinted of these excerpts in order to determine how they may have impacted American readers' perceptions of Twain and of Hawaii. The first common reprint that I will examine differs from the others in that, even in excerpt form, it offers a pointed critique of the deleterious effects of American imperialism and missionaries. 
The version in the February 16, 1873 Columbia, South Carolina, Daily Phoenix, appeared as an entry in a column of miscellaneous items and reads in its entirety, quote, Mark Twain that sa says that 18 or 19 years ago, the population of the Sandwich Islands was 400,000. Then the people were happy and alarmingly prosperous. Civilization reached them, and in two years, the natives numbered only 100,000. He thinks a few more seminaries would finish them completely. At the end of, Mar of March 1873, it appeared in the current items columns of three more newspapers. The joke also featured in six reviews or collections of multiple jokes from Twain's lecture. Like many other parts of Twain's Sandwich Islands lectures, it combines facts with a punchline. By associating learning with genocide, as Caron writes, the joke strikes satirically at the foundation of the missionary's work. It is therefore somewhat surprising that this joke was excerpted and, re and reprinted even a few times, but it does coincide with the clearly anti-annexation attitude that Twain expressed in his widely excerpted and reprinted January 1873 Letters About Hawaii to the New York Tribune. The excerpt echoes the ironic support for annexation that Twain expressed in those letters, and thus served as a counterpart uh, to it in the first months of 1873. Other commonly reprinted jokes from Twain's lecture tend to denigrate Hawaiians and tacitly excuse American imperialism, often in ways that ignore the self-effacing irony of Twain's lectures. For instance, another popular joke from Twain's lecture that also circulated in multiple versions in the first half of 1873 sought to other Hawaiians by mocking their dress, or rather their undress. I found seven reprints of the following joke appearing in newspapers in Ohio, Iowa, Illinois, Maine, Tennessee, and even Hawaii, as well as six versions that appeared in reviews, reviews of or collections of multiple jokes. The most common version is worded as follows, quote, lecturing on the Sandwich Islands in New York the other evening, Mark Twain graphically described the costumes of the islanders. In the towns, they wear something like civilized garments, but in the upcountry, they wear, well, a smile or a pair of spectacles or something of that sort. Other versions replace something or something of that sort with, quote, rarely anything else, or add in editorial commentary, such as, we should say that to wear only a smile or a frown would be reducing one's garments to the last degree of thinness. In each case, Twain's genial humor and the newspaper's presentation and commentary on it pretend to perform Victorian restraint while titillating readers by stoking their sensual fantasies about Pacific Islanders. Circulating during the same months as Twain's dark anti-missionary jest about Hawaiian population decline, this joke allows its readers to an imagined gaze at Hawaiian bodies. Two years later, a similarly demeaning Twain joke about Hawaiians was reprinted at least 18 times in newspapers in 10 different states and territories, territories from Maryland to Montana, between January 30th and April 7th, 1875. The joke, quote, Mark Twain says the Sandwich Islanders are generally as unlettered as the backside of a tombstone, is a dig at Hawaiian sorry, is a dig at Hawaiian literacy that Twain himself knew was inaccurate. According to Paul Fatout's composite transcript of Twain's 1869-1870 lectures in Mark Twain speaking, Twain praised Hawaii's high literacy rates, saying, quote, the missionaries taught the whole nation to read and write with facility in the native tongue. I don't suppose there is there is today a single uneducated person above eight years of age in the Sandwich Islands. It is the best educated country in the world, I believe, not accepting portions of the United States. According to the February 8, 1873 Brooklyn Eagle transcript of the lecture, three years later, Twain was still doing this bit about Hawaii being, quote, the best educated country in the world. 
According to this transcript, the unlettered as the backside of a tombstone joke was actually a dig at the American-born Charles Coffin Harris, who served as Hawaii's Minister of Finance from 1865 to 1869 and Minister of Foreign Affairs from 1869 to 1872. Harris was a constant target for Twain's mockery throughout his Hawaii writings. In his 1873 lecture, Twain set up Harris as the epitome of American charlatans working for the Hawaiian government. He said of Harris, quote, These white people get to be ministers, political ministers, I mean. There's a perfect raft of them there. Harris is one of them. Harris is minister of, well, he's minister of pretty much everything. He is a long-legged, lightweight, average lawyer from New Hampshire. Now, if Harris had brains in proportion to his legs, he would make Solomon seem a failure. If, he had mo if his modesty equaled his ignorance, he would make a violet seem stuck up. And if his learning equaled his vanity, he would make Humboldt, uh, this is Prussian polymath Friedrich Wilhelm Heinrich Alexander von Humboldt, seem as unlettered as the backside of a tombstone. In the lecture, then, Twain clearly praises common Hawaiian's learning while denigrating the intelligence of a white American government minister. But the newspaper editors excerpting the joke shifted its butt from Harris in particular to, quote, Sandwich Islanders generally. In doing so, or in eagerly catching at the chance to reprint another newspaper making this switch, these editors revised Twain's account of Hawaiians to align more closely with their own preconceived, stereotypical notions of native inferiority. Another oft-reprinted Twain joke from his Sandwich Islands lectures maintained its dual targets in reprints. Quote, Mark Twain says that, says that Sandwich Islands dish of plain dog is only our cherished American sausage with the mystery removed. I found 16 reprints plus at least six more uh, times in reviews, transcripts, or articles collecting Twain jokes. Uh, of instances of this joke between 1869 and 1874, the vast majority from November 1869 through the end of 1870, across 11 states. These reprints vary very little in their wording. In Twain's lecture, it serves as the punchline to his discussion of how much Hawaiians love their dogs, but eventually, quote, kill and eat them. According to the Brooklyn transcript, uh, sorry, Brooklyn Eagle transcript, Twain explains that, quote, these dogs are raised entirely for the table and fed exclusively on a cleanly vegetable diet all their lives. Many a white citizen learns to throw aside his prejudices and eat of the dish. After all, it's only our American sausage with the mystery removed. Even without this fuller context, the joke itself mocks both Hawaiians for the seemingly barbaric practice of eating their pets and Americans for eating what amounts to mystery meat. Readers' momentary feeling of superiority as they laugh at Hawaiians for eating dogs evaporates when Twain implies that they too eat dogs, only in sausage form. As part of his disquisition on Hawaiians eating dogs, Twain averred in his lectures that, quote, I couldn't do that. I'd rather go hungry two days than eat an old friend in that way. A bastardization of, of this joke circulated in, in reprints, applying these remarks not to eating a dog, but to eating humans. It appeared in February 1873 in a Washington, D.C. newspaper as follows. Mark Twain, in speaking of cannibalism, grows serious for once and solemnly declares that for his own part, he would rather go hungry for two days than eat an old personal friend. I found five reprints of the joke in the context of cannibalism in newspapers in such diverse places as South Carolina, Delaware, Montana, and Michigan, and three other instances in reviews or collected jokes from Twain's lectures. Another version, printed in the New York Tribune and copied by the Honolulu Pacific Commercial Advertiser, admits the appropriate context for these remarks but still connects them to cannibalism by association. 
Quote, the charge of cannibalism was discussed at length, and the lecturer assured his hearers that for his own part, he would rather go hungry for two days than eat an old, eat an own personal friend. This was apropos to pet dogs, but led the way through the mixed diet of the islanders, including sausage with the mystery removed. Both versions have the effect of twisting and conflating Twain's lecture topics to raise the specter of cannibalism, which was a particular obsession of 19th century American readers and joke tellers in their imagination of, of Pacific Islanders. Of course, this misinterpretation was plausible given Twain's comic concentration on cannibalism in his lectures and other writings about Hawaii. In fact, the most reprinted joke from Twain's Sandwich Islands lectures, by far, was another cannibalism joke in which Twain situated himself, not Native Hawaiians, as a savage cannibal. In his lectures, Twain sometimes proposed to explain the practice of cannibalism by demonstrating, demonstrating it on a baby in the audience, if only a mother would volunteer her child. In reversing the stereotype by portraying himself, not a Native Hawaiian, as a cannibal, Twain brought the act of cannibalism to America, to the very stage upon which he stood. The first appearance of this joke that I found was in the December 26, 1866 Boston Evening Transcript. Quote, Mark Twain, a California humorist about to visit the Atlantic states in the printed program of a lecture he was lately to give in San Jose, proposed to illustrate the cannibal propensities of the ancient islanders by devouring a child in the presence of the audience, if some lady would furnish one for the occasion. That part of the program was necessarily omitted, no maternal relative coming forward with a spare infant to enable him to carry out the illustration. Caron notes in his analysis of Twain's lectures, quote, to complete this outrageous joke, Mark Twain would pause and wait in silence for a few moments, as though expecting a child to be produced. Western audiences apparently found this dark humor hilarious. As Caron has also pointed out, in defending Hawaiians from charges of cannibalism, Twain said at various times in various ways that Hawaiian cannibals uh, are, quote, almost played out or that they never existed. While offering to enact cannibalism himself, Twain doesn't just put himself on the same moral level as Hawaiians. Instead, he figures himself and his laughing audience by connection as much worse than Hawaiians. In addition to reversing normal stereotypes of who engages in civilized and who in savage behavior, this joke revolves in part around the expectations of the genre of the lecture, at which audience members expect to hear about exotic otherness rather than see it illustrated by a fellow American. Additionally, in the fuller context of the lecture, Twain's excuses for not performing cannibalism, A, because, quote, I am a stranger here and don't feel like taking liberties, B, quote, I will leave out that part of my program, though it is very neat and pleasant, and C, because, quote, I am not hungry, are all the more barbarous for their invidious observances of polite society. The joke was excerpted at least 49 times in multiple incarnations between December 1866 and 1895, amounting to almost 42% of the reprints of individual jokes that my search has uncovered. It also appeared in reviews of the lectures or, or collections of jokes uh, from them at least another nine times. The short, shocking joke obviously made great comic filler and was in near-constant circulation from January 1866 through January 1870, appearing at least 38 times during that span, sometimes in multiple issues of the same periodical. For instance, the Philadelphia Weekly Saturday Night reprinted the exact same wording of the joke twice within three months, in September, in September and November of 1867. The joke seems to have disappeared in favor of other popular excerpts from Twain's lectures that I discussed earlier, from 1870 until about 1876, when it reappeared at least another three times, then twice in 1880, five times in 1884, 
in once in 1895, almost 30 years after the joke began circulating in newspapers. As might be expected from such a widely circulating piece of fugitive humor, the joke made the rounds in multiple iterations over the years. I'll analyze just two brief examples of, of important changes in the circulating joke. First, in December 1867, a version briefly circulated that replaced Hawaii with Fiji. Probably, my guess is, because Fiji was more commonly associated with cannibalism in contemporary media accounts. This version reads, Mark Twain, lecturing on the Fiji Islands, offered to show how the cannibals eat their food if some lady would hand him a baby. The lecture was not illustrated. Two other reprints in December 1867 used the same text, thus substituting the entire subject of Twain's lecture. Such editorial changes conflate all Pacific Islands and Islanders as culturally monolithic or interchangeable. It also shows the inextricability of Pacific cultures and cannibalism in Americans' minds, egged on by editors' seeming fear of and fascination with cannibalism as the ultimate signifier of otherness. In November 1869, reprints began to include Twain's commentary on the American women's rights movement at the end of the excerpt. Several newspapers quoted or paraphrased Twain as saying, quote, I am aware, though, that children have become scarce and high of late, having been thinned out by neglect and ill treatment since the women movement began. End quote. This context further explains Twain's humor in the lecture, in blaming the women's rights movement for what he pretends is a paucity of children, you know, children for him to eat. Twain uses stereotypes of alleged Hawaiian savagery to mock American social politics. I found eight reprints of this version between November 1869 and January 1870, but when the joke resurfaced in 1876 and 1884, this part was no longer attached to it. Twain's cannibalism joke seems to have become intertwined with Americans' conception of the humorist in the 1860s and 1870s. An American cannibal at home, according to an item going the rounds of, of the newspapers in the second half of 1870, uh, I found at least six mentions of this between August and December of that year, was the rumored title uh, of a book that Mark Twain was writing. That book would eventually appear in 1872 as Roughing It. The fact that the press, and maybe Twain himself, would persist in calling him an American cannibal, even when he was writing about the U.S., shows just how important to Twain's literary character and celebrity was his 1866 trip to, and subsequent writing and lectures about, Hawaii. Reprints of jokes from his Sandwich Islands lectures kept Twain's name constantly in the newspapers, and allowed him to reach a much larger audience than through his lectures alone, thus helping to cement his place as America's top humorist. Twain helped to stoke the, quote, frenzy concerning the Sandwich Islands that he referenced in his 1873 London Weekly Standard letters, and in turn was aided professionally by his association with a place and subject that held Americans' imaginations throughout the mid-19th century. At the same time, as I hope I have shown, periodical editors, in reprinting jokes from Twain's Sandwich Islands lectures, often took them out of context at, at best, or altered them at worst, in ways that reinforce editors' and readers' preconceived notions of Hawaiian savagery. Twain's serio-comic lectures certainly traf trafficked in stereotypes to get laughs, I'm certainly not denying that, but did so with more nuance than brief uh, periodical excerpts of them display. In addition, most of the popular reprints do not capture ways in which Twain's lectures used Hawaii and Hawaiians as a foil to critique America and Americans. Such subtleties are necessarily lost in the contextless excerpts and newspaper columns of humor and miscellany, even when Twain's words were not twisted or changed. Thank you again very much for listening. I really appreciate it.
That was Todd Thompson of Indiana University of Pennsylvania. Remember, if you'd like to talk more with Todd and the rest of the Viral Twain panel, register for Virtual C19. Learn more at c19society.org or marktwainstudies.org. Our next segment is the opening lecture in the 2020 Fall Trouble Begins series. The Center for Mark Twain Studies has been hosting the Trouble Begins lectures since the 1980s, usually on the Elmira College campus or in the barn at Quarry Farm, which has been retrofitted for that purpose. This year, of course, we had to migrate the series exclusively to digital formats, but you can find recordings of Trouble Begins lectures dating back to the origin of the series at marktwainstudies.org. Mark Davidziak has been working as a television, film, and theater critic for more than 40 years, much of that time at the Cleveland Plain Dealer. Since 2009, he has also taught reviewing as an adjunct professor at Kent State University. He has written books about classic TV series like Columbo and the Twilight Zone, a biography of Jim Tully, and several plays for the largely literary theater company, an educational troupe he co-founded with his wife, Sarah Showman. But in this talk, Mark brings together two of his personal and professional passions, Twain Studies and Classic Horror. Mark has edited three collections of Twain's writings, most recently, Mark Twain for Cat Lovers. He is also the author of The Bedside, Bathtub, and Armchair Companion to Dracula, An Essential Guide to the Undead. Here is Mark Twain Meets Dracula. Hello, and yes, our main feature, starting in just a few seconds, is Mark Twain meets Dracula. Enter freely and of your own will. I am Mark Dewidziak, and I bid you welcome. By way of introduction, I was drawn to this topic because it draws on two great areas of interest for me. You see, my books happen to include this, mark my words, Mark Twain on writing, and this, the bedside, bathtub, and armchair companion to Dracula. But there's also this, Mark Twain's guide to diet, exercise, beauty, fashion, investment, romance, health, and happiness. And yes, I know the title's too short. And this, the Night Stalker companion. For those of you who remember that particular vampire story, but then there's also this, Mark Twain for Cat Lovers, and this, Bloodlines, Richard Matheson's Dracula, I Am Legend, and Other Vampires. What follows, therefore, is an expanded version of a paper given at the 8th International Conference on the State of Mark Twain Studies in August 2017. Now, during that conference, the collective knowledge about Mark Twain on this campus at that time was as staggering as it was awe-inspiring. The ground fairly shook from the combined weight of experience and expertise. Well, you were surrounded by Twainiacs who could tell you everything from his height and average weight to the recipe for his favorite cocktail. But, how about Bram Stoker? 
If you are at all familiar with the name of that writer, it's probably because he wrote a little horror tome titled Dracula. Now you may have heard of that, but Bram Stoker had 18 books published over a 35 year span. So here's my question. Name me another title. It's all right, I'll wait. Right, <laughs> unlike Mark Twain, Bram Stoker was a bit of a literary one-hit wonder. Now, yes, he did pen a couple of fairly impressive horror novels besides Dracula, including The Lair of the White Worm, which was turned into a bizarre 1988 film by director Ken Russell, as if Ken Russell was capable of directing any other kind of film, and The Jewel of the Seven Stars, considered one of the first major mummy novels. Now, there have been four film versions of that one, including a 1980 release, The Awakening, starring Charlton Heston. But let's face it, if we know the name Bram Stoker today, it's because he penned the landmark novel Dracula. He achieved a level of literary immortality by writing an incredibly influential, much adapted, much imitated novel about a potentially immortal creature. And yet, in his lifetime, Stoker wasn't even best known as a writer. So another question that may be on your finals. What was he best known for? He was best known as the manager of London's Lyceum Theatre. And the Lyceum Theatre was the home theatre of Sir Henry Irving. And when I asked my students at Kent State University, if they recognize the name Sir Henry Irving, all I get is blank stares. Not one student in 10 years displays even a flicker of recognition. So how to describe Sir Henry Irving to them? And here's what I tell them. He was not only the leading Shakespearean actor of his day, he was the best known actor on the planet you could take Tom Hanks, Denzel Washington, Harrison Ford, Will Smith, Chris Pratt, Chris Evans, Chris Hensworth, and any other Chris's you might want to add, put them all together, multiply them by 10, and you still wouldn't have Sir Henry Irving. He was the first actor of any kind to be Sir Anything. He was the first member of his profession to go down on a knee before a monarch have a sword tapped on each shoulder, arise, Sir Henry Irving. He was so big that when he died in October 1905, the funeral was at Westminster Abbey. That's the big room. That's where they bury the kings and queens. And yet, if you had attended that funeral in October 1905, and had the temerity to suggest that 115 years hence to the month, a professor at a major American university would mention the name Sir Henry Irving and not one student would recognize it, you would have been tossed out of that abbey for speaking heresy. But then, if you had had the temerity to suggest that his manager, Bram Stoker, would be better known, you wouldn't have been thrown out of that abbey. You would have been laughed out. Bram Stoker, his manager? And yet, 
Bram Stoker has emerged as the better known of the two because he wrote a book bigger than himself, Dracula. Now, what has that all got to do with the price of Twain? Well, we have reached that crossroads where Main Street Hannibal intersects with the Borgo Pass. And we get there by following another question. Does Mark Twain make something of a cameo appearance in Dracula, the landmark horror novel published in May, 1897? Is he lurking in the shadows of that incredible 161,000 word book? Well, at the very least, best evidence suggests that the reports of his being mentioned in the novel are not greatly exaggerated. The moment occurs in chapter 14, when intrepid vampire fighter, Professor Abraham Van Helsing is telling Jonathan Harker, Dr. John Seward and their allies, the facts of life and undeath. When they protest that vampires are beyond the scope of belief, he tells them, I heard once of an American who so defined faith, that faculty which enables us to believe things which we know to be untrue. For one, I follow that man. Mark Twain, most likely, is the American Van Helsing is citing here. Compare Van Helsing's paraphrase and the actual Twain line in following the equator. Faith is believing what you know ain't so. Knowing that Twain and Stoker were friends, most Dracula scholars have no doubt believing that the line is a sly nod to the author of Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. But most works published on Dracula, as well as annotated editions of the novel, wrongly attribute the you ain't you know ain't so line to Puddinghead Wilson, which was published in 1894. Twain sent Stoker a copy of Puddinghead Wilson in 1894, and since the line is one of the chapter headings known as Puddinghead Wilson's calendar, the assumption has been that Stoker knew it three years before Dracula was published. But back up the hearse a moment. The line actually appeared in Following the Equator as part of Puddinhead Wilson's new calendar, a device Twain carried over from the previous work. Following the Equator was published in 1897, the same year as Dracula. Now, does that drive a stake through the claim that Van Helsing was quoting Twain? Dracula scholar Leonard Wolfe has suggested another American as a possible source for the Van Helsing paraphrase, William James, the psychologist and philosopher who died the same year as Twain, 1910. Writing about the title essay in his The Will to Believe and other essays in popular philosophy, James observed that it is in justification of faith or defense of our right to adopt a believing attitude in religious matters in spite of the fact that our merely logical intellect may not have been coerced. Well, James fails as the American claimant for three reasons. First, his scholarly phrasing has none of the folksy quality shared by the Van Helsing passage and the familiar Twain line. Second, there's no evidence that Stoker knew or read James, although Twain did. 
and was reading The Principles of Psychology in January of 1897. And third, the will to believe in other essays in popular philosophy also was published in 1897, raising the same question of access as following the equator. But Twain remains the favorite candidate for Van Helsing's wise American. And despite their widespread error in dating Puddinghead Wilson's calendar entry, students of Dracula probably arrived at the right conclusion. What Twain scholars could have told Stoker scholars was that Stoker did have access to Twain and following the equator in late 1896 and early 1897. Mark Twain, born Samuel Langhorne Clemens in 1835, was just one of the many literary celebrities Stoker counted among his friends. Stoker was admired and trusted by a staggering number of authors, artists, and statesmen on both sides of the Atlantic. Stoker carried on a long correspondence with, ready, Walt Whitman, and they met during one of the Lyceum's theater's tour of America. Whitman said of the Irish writer, my gracious, he knows enough for four or five ordinary men and what tact, he's like a breath of good, healthy, breezy sea air. Friends with both Mark Twain and Walt Whitman? Well, that would be enough, certainly, but you're just beginning to chart the circumference of the Stoker friendship circle. In England, he was friends with both Sherlock Holmes creator, Arthur Conan Doyle, and Oscar Wilde, once a suitor for the hand of Stoker's wife, Florence. Stoker remained close friends with W.S. Gilbert, the notoriously prickly playwright, best known for his operetta collaborations with Arthur Sullivan. And folks, nobody remained close friends with Gilbert. Stoker also counted Henry Dickens, the novelist's son, and Baroness Angela Burdett Coutts, a Dickens partner in philanthropic projects among his many acquaintances. And journalist explorer Henry Morton Stanley, also friends with Twain, was one of the ones who encouraged Stoker to pursue literature as a career. Both painter James Whistler and aging poet Alfred Lord Tennyson sought Stoker's advice and valued his friendship. At the center of London's theatrical world, as the manager of superstar Irving's Lyceum Theater, Stoker also was a dear friend to Britain's first lady of the stage, Ellen Terry. Through his post at the Lyceum, he got to know George Bernard Shaw, an Irishman like Stoker in a while, Sarah Bernhardt, and Edwin Booth. Among the leading political figures, he was admired by William Ewart Gladstone, Theodore Roosevelt, and Winston Churchill. If you're judged by the company you keep, Stoker's marks are off the chart. Twain and Stoker may have met through Irving in England during the summer of 1879, when Twain also met Henry James, Charles Darwin, and James Whistler. Or they may have met in New York during the Lyceum Theater's 1883 tour of the United States. There would be many more meetings on both sides of the Atlantic. The two writers last saw each other in 1907 
when Twain received his honorary degree from Oxford University. They corresponded until Twain's death in 1910. Twain invited both Irving and Stoker to invest in the Page Compositor, an ill-fated typesetting machine that played a key part in Twain's financial ruin. He returned Stoker's money when it was obvious that the typesetter was too complicated and accident prone to succeed. I can't get up enough courage to talk about the misfortune myself except to you, Twain wrote to Stoker at the time. To repay his debts dollar for dollar, Twain embarked on a round-the-world lecture tour starting in Cleveland, Ohio in July 1895. He continued his way west across North America, lecturing in Australia, India, and South Africa. He reached London one year later, and at this heroic moment of triumph, learned that his favorite daughter, Susie, had died of spinal meningitis at the family's home in Hartford, Connecticut. She was 24. Devastated, the Clemens family went into seclusion at a rented house in the Surrey town of Guilford. In October, they moved to a rented house at 23 Tedworth Square in London's Chelsea district. This was near Brahm and Florence Stoker's St. Leonard's Terrace home in London. Many of Twain's closest English friends didn't even know he was in London. One of the few people the family saw on a regular basis during this difficult period was Bram Stoker, whose friendship, loyalty, and discretion were greatly valued by Twain. Stoker was admitted into the solitude and he never betrayed that trust. He never wrote of what he observed inside 23 Tedworth Square. During that dark period, when Twain wasn't seeing much of anyone in England, he was seeing quite a bit of Bram Stoker. Quote, Twain liked discussing business matters with him, Michael Sheldon writes in his 2010 biography, Mark Twain, Man and White. His advice was uncommonly reliable. It was also fun to listen to his gossip. He knew all the famous people in the theatrical world and many of their secrets. Stoker secured theater tickets for Twain's daughters, Clara and Jean. He coaxed the Clemens family out to dinner in January 1897. And most significantly, Twain drafted Stoker to act as his agent for the British edition of his travel book about the round the world lecture tour following the equator. It was published by the London firm of Chateau and Windus in 1897. It was not the first time Twain had sought such representation from Stoker. Always trying and failing to write a successful play, Twain once asked him to be his agent in Britain for dramatic works. This did not prove to be a demanding assignment. Confidentially, I have always had the idea that I was well-equipped to write plays, Twain said in 1895, but I have never encountered a manager who has agreed with me. During one of their meetings, the two men exchanged tales of witchcraft before a literary crowd at Brown's Hotel on Dover Street in London. Fine, tell us some more, Stoker said to Twain. I have a short story on witchcraft in hand. Now, some Twain scholars have suggested this short story grew into Dracula, but this conversation, recorded by American journalist Eugene Field, was in 1907, 10 years after Dracula was published. 
In a cozy corner by a fireplace, he spent a couple of hours enjoying a simple meal with his old friend, whose genial company he had enjoyed off and on for 20 years, Sheldon writes in Mark Twain, Man in White. Over meat pies and beer, Stoker could let down his guard and allow his Irish wit and charm to shine. The two writers shared an interest in dreams and ghost stories and spent their time together trading spooky tales of witchcraft like a couple of boys sitting around a campfire on a dark night. It was an ongoing discussion. During their first meetings, they exchanged views on the conflicts of duality, on nightmares, and on the unconscious, as Barbara Belfort points out in her biography of Stoker, and their discussions of dreams and dual personalities continued. This was almost an obsession with Twain, who also carried on a warm correspondence with Robert Louis Stevenson, author of The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Twain, who met Stevenson on a sunny April 1897 day in Washington Square Park, was more than taken with this horror tale than Stoker's novel. And Stevenson's story was on his mind during his final days at Stormfield in Reading, Connecticut. In late 1896, however, Twain certainly would have been well aware that his friend was about to publish a vampire novel. Stoker made sure to send Twain a presentation copy of Dracula, although there is no evidence that Twain read the supernatural story. Belford believes Twain read as least as far as the Van Helsing line, recognizing himself as the source for the rewritten maxim. David J. Skull, a leading authority on all things Dracula and Stoker, has examined all the evidence from all sides and recognizing that line for the sly nod that it is. Quote, Van Helsing is quoting Mark Twain, says Scal, author of the definitive Bram Stoker biography, Something in the Blood, published in 2016. There is no doubt in my mind that's Mark Twain putting in an appearance in Dracula. Related by Daniel Farzan in his 1975 biography of his great uncle, a Stoker family legend tells of Florence inviting the famous American author to tea. She gave the maid strict orders not to admit anyone but Mark Twain. When the time for Twain's arrival had slipped by, Florence sent for the maid. No word had been received of Mark Twain being delayed, the maid told her. I thought I heard the doorbell, Florence said. Yes, replied the maid. It was a Mr. Clemens, but I told him you weren't at home. Now the story may be apocryphal. It was good enough to be repeated by generation after generation of Stokers. Twain may or may not have made it through the front door of the Stoker household on that occasion, but Bram Stoker certainly made sure he made it into Dracula, slipping him in, slipping him in through the side door. This has been the second episode of the first season of The American Vandal, a production of the Center for Mark Twain Studies. Thank you to this episode's featured scholars, Todd Nathan Thompson and Mark Davidziak. 
as well as to C-19, the Society of 19th Century Americanists, for hosting the Viro Twain panel at their virtual conference. And to Joe Lamack, director of the Center for Mark Twain Studies and organizer of the Trouble Begins lecture series. And finally, to Steve Webb, caretaker at Quarry Farm and composer of our theme music.